The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Now, from our nation's capital, this is Bloomberg Sound On. What we do need to get control over is the issue of inflation itself. There's nothing to celebrate when you have inflation in double digits almost. I mean, you name it, there's no good news for the American consumer out there. Bloomberg Sound On. Politics, policy, and perspective from D.C.'s top names. We're still one and a half million jobs lower than what we were pre-pandemic. We're still below where we need to be. We have to find cooler heads and come to the middle and find solutions for the American people. Bloomberg Sound On with... Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer has one main goal this week to confirm Judge Katanji Brown Jackson to the Supreme Court, but it's going to take a little longer after committee deadlocked on her nomination 11 to 11. And U.S. officials are considering additional sanctions for Russia after a horrific discovery of killings in a suburb of Kiev over the weekend. I'm Emily Wilkins, here with my co-host Jack Fitzpatrick. We are filling in this week for Joe Matthew. Well, all eyes are on the Senate this week, uh, where Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson is set to be confirmed to be the first black woman to sit on the Supreme Court. But this, as you should be used to with for anyone who watches the Senate or watches Congress, is going to be taking some time. Jack, at this point, what's the timeline for like actually getting the vote, at which point we can say that she has formally been confirmed by the Senate? Well, they want to do it this week. They're leaving for a two-week recess after this. Uh, we're looking for a committee vote uh, this afternoon or this uh, sometime today. It was supposed to be this morning, but this just speaks to the the razor-thin nature of the Senate. Alex Padilla, the senator from California, had a delayed flight, so they had to push back that Judiciary Committee uh, meeting because they have to at least get a tie vote in order to get it out of the committee. And if anybody is on a delayed flight, if anybody uh, doesn't remember to tie their shoes and they trip on their way, there's a million things that <laughs> can go get wrong COVID. to delay it. I mean, this is yeah. like the real concern here. That's been an issue. Yeah, yeah. people getting COVID. Uh, Senator Ben Ben Ray Lujan, thank goodness he's okay. It, it appears to be fine, but he had a stroke earlier in the year. Uh, it's very possible for little day-to-day mishaps to take away the actual uh, majority that Democrats have in the Senate. So they're trying to get this done for real this week, and we're looking for a committee vote uh, later today. And Senator Schumer set up a floor vote tonight after that to uh, discharge it from the committee because the expectation this would actually be a tied committee vote rather than a majority. Yep, we've got the committee vote. We've got the vote to get out of the committee. We got the vote to move to the nomination. Uh, there will be many, many votes, I think, is, is the takeaway here before we are going to get to that final one, hopefully on Friday. Hopefully we all won't be stuck here for, for a long weekend. But to bring in a little bit more detail on this, uh, we're going to bring in AFG Investments Chief U.S. Policy Strategist, 
Greg Valliere. Uh, Greg uh, does an excellent newsletter every morning. He usually focuses on one or two topics, but today he couldn't pick just one. He gave his insight on a ton of different ones. Uh, Greg, it's great to have you on. One thing, uh, you already know this, that caught my eye this morning. Uh, you gave a at least 80% chance for Judge Jackson to get confirmed. And I'm surprised you put it as low as 80% because at this point, it looks like we've got all Democrats on board and even one Republican. Could anything go wrong at this point? Probably not. And great to be with both of you. Nice to be on your show. I think that she uh, is is a cinch. You know, maybe it's 90 percent. I probably was a little too low in my piece this morning. But I, barring some extraordinary development from out of left field, she'll make it. The only issue is when. And, of course, it's worth noting she really won't be sitting and serving on the court until the fall. So even if this does get delayed by two weeks, it will not really have a, a meaningful impact. Uh, so, Greg, what do you make of the the thin, uh, as I said, the razor thin, there's a razor thin Senate, uh, and, and that has played out with the Katanji Brown-Jackson process. Now, this was a, a nominee who got 53 votes and some bipartisan support yeah. in a previous vote. But when you watched those hearings and you, you heard uh, Josh Hawley and other Republican senators uh, criticizing her record, trying to, to poke some holes in her record on uh, child pornography sentencing, this seems to have been fairly contentious. What do you make of the, the contentious and and very close uh, in terms of the vote count close nature of how this has gone forward it's the nature of the beast right now jack i mean everywhere you look uh, things are so bitterly divided they can't agree on aid for ukraine they can't agree to uh, to really on uh, virtually anything uh, there may be a revival of talks between joe manchin and the white house on some spending bills but I'll believe that when I see it. It's just about everything that gets uh, in the limelight seemingly just grinds to a halt. And, Greg, we've seen that Susan Collins has come out as a yes uh, for Judge Jackson to be yep. uh, nominated to SCOTUS. What other Republicans are you watching at this point who might join Collins in that? Well, I, I think the, the, the wild card here could be Mitt Romney, uh, who has indicated he, he might consider a yes vote. And of course, Lisa Murkowski of Alaska. Other than those two, uh, uh, Emily, I don't think there's there's much hope. I mean, if they get to 52 or 53, that would be quite an accomplishment. Uh, Greg, I've got to ask, you know, you had this wide-ranging piece handicapping uh, different different issues. The big, broad issue that you touch on is President Biden's re-election chances or even the chances of whether he runs again. You you gave him only about a 40 percent chance yep. of running again. You're leaning away from him being re-elected to a second term. And I, I hear you on your written explanation on the things that are playing against him, whether COVID, inflation, Ukraine, the Afghanistan pullout was very, very messy. But I've got to ask, why now, why this early do you think it's, uh, it, it's okay to say, wow, it actually looks even at this early point with two and a half years left, uh, that it's it's leaning away from a second term? Well, I think the catalyst, Jack, is going to be the November election. I think you've got to assume the Republicans win, and maybe win big. I'm on the low end. I'm saying the Republicans get 15 or 20 seats. They only need about five. But it could be more. It could be 30, 35, 40. If it's a, a blowout, 
I think that the party is going to be looking for a scapegoat, and I think that scapegoat is going to be Joe Biden, who's had a very mixed track record in the, his first two years. So I, I think a, a blowout in November would set in motion a process whereby uh, Biden uh, decides he's not going to run again. And it's worth noting, guys, if Biden were to run and win a second term, he would be leaving the White House, theoretically, at the age of 86 at the end of his second term. That's too old. Yeah, that's certainly something we've heard Republicans really, you know, try and hit Biden on on his mental state, on his, you know, what he says, how he says it, whether he is fit to serve. That That's certainly attacks that we've heard and ones that, that we're likely to continue to hear. Um, you also mentioned, you know, just the number of seats that, that Republicans could expect to flip. We've heard House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy say that Republicans could flip as many as 60 seats next year. And you've seen Democrats really come out and start defending these seats. That, that Biden won by 8 9%. Uh, but, Greg, I, I noticed here within your review, you gave Dems a 30% chance of continuing to hold the House. So you see some sort of path forward for them here to be successful in November. What does that look like? Well, if, if Ukraine is resolved, and that's a very, very big if, as we all know, after the horrible events that we've seen today, uh, if inflation begins to subside, uh, if there's a drop in urban crime, a lot of ifs. I, I think that uh, the, the wind is blowing against Biden now. And, and I would just say, by the way, quickly, I, I'm not convinced that he's got a cognitive problem. I have no idea. But, but I would say on issue after issue, uh, he's not in the mainstream. And I think his uh, move to the left earlier this year uh, didn't, help, uh, didn't help him. I think that he aligned himself with progressives who had agenda items that the country didn't like, defund the police, uh, tax increases, Medicare for all, change the Supreme Court. So I think on a lot of issues, he's out of the mainstream. I think it's going to be the issues that will doom him, not necessarily a perception that he's, you know, having cognitive problems. I don't think he's there yet. And it's very interesting because now you have seen Biden sort of swing back, you know, appear with Eric Adams, say that yep. he wants to fund the police. You saw that in his most recent budget, have that fiscal conservativeness. So it seems like he is now trying to move toward the center as you get close to the election. And, and in addition to that, I, I, we heard about it in his State of the Union and all of that, uh, whether it's the deficit or funding the police. Uh, you touched on, Greg, the issue of how long does the war in Ukraine go on? Uh, and I'm, I'm curious, you know, when you talk to investors about what to expect that, that creates so much uh, uncertainty, I would note that uh, Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor today, said it appears, based on the U.S.'s understanding, that Russia is repositioning their forces to focus on an offensive in eastern Ukraine. I'm curious what you make of the significance of that. Does that draw things out at all because they, they, they they can, uh, I guess, lower their their views on, uh, you know, get something to, that Russia wants to accomplish, conquer some territory or something like that? Or, or is that essentially uh, them falling back and it, it shortens the timeline? What does that tell us about the timeline in Ukraine? Well, there, there's a lot of uncertainty, obviously. And you, you keyed on something, Jack, uh, uh, 
few seconds ago, and that is the markets. I think the markets can live with this uncertainty uh, in Ukraine. Uh, I think the markets have an issue, however, on the Federal Reserve. If the Fed continues to hike rates, and I see no reason why they won't, uh, at some point there's going to be real anxiety that they've done too much. And they could do too much and, and send the economy into a real slowdown. I think that's a bigger concern for the markets, frankly, than anything else. And Greg, uh, you know, you were talking about things that Democrats need to do to win. And I just want to go back to this, you know, things we talk about, the inflation, the gas prices. I mean, is there anything at this point that President Biden can actually do? I mean, so much of this is out of his control. Yeah, it is. You know, and on inflation, there's inflation everywhere. Boris Johnson has inflation. There's inflation in many countries around the world. It's not unique uh, to Joe Biden. But I do think there's a perception in the country, fair or not, and Joe Manchin helped to fuel this, that they've spent too much money. And that by spending um, close to $6 trillion last year, that exacerbated inflationary pressures. That's why I think in his uh, State of the Union address and in his new budget, he seemed to tilt a little more to the center, as we were just saying. I think he has to show he's more of a centrist. If he keeps talking about huge new spending, that's not going to help him. Yeah. Well, hey, uh, AFG Investments Chief U.S. Policy Strategist Greg Vellier, thank you so much for joining us. Coming up in a minute, we are going to assemble our star panel of Jeannie Shanzano and Rick Davis. I'm Emily Wilkins here with Jack Fitzpatrick. This is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. Senators aim to vote today to start the confirmation process for Katanji Brown-Jackson, who's up for a Supreme Court seat. The Senate Judiciary Committee had a tied vote earlier today. That itself was delayed due to a delayed flight that Senator Alex Padilla was on. It's not an easy path forward for Judge Jackson, but it is expected that she will become the first black woman confirmed to the U.S. Supreme Court. I'm Jack Fitzpatrick here with my Bloomberg government co-host, Emily Wilkins. We've got to bring in our all-star panel, Bloomberg Politics contributors Jeannie Shianzano and Rick Davis, who have insights on everything happening in Washington. Guys, I've got to start with the confirmation process for Katanji Brown-Jackson. Uh, they're setting up a floor vote today, tonight rather, uh, to get her confirmation out of the committee after that tied committee vote. Uh, I, I've got to get your expectations, Jeannie, on how this goes forward, if there are any barriers. But I've also got to give you a little bit of a victory lap, because the last time I was on the show, after some Republicans, such as uh, John Cornyn, were saying, uh, in contrast to the Kavanaugh hearings, where they got very personal, Republicans were going to do their best to play nice. We heard from a number of Republicans, uh, I would point to 
Josh Hawley and Ted Cruz, who made a lot of uh, seven to ten or so uh, cases where they said Judge Jackson was not tough enough on uh, child pornography charges. I, I think you deserve a little bit of a victory lap because those hearings got a little bit more heated than even some Senate Republicans had indicated. Uh, but Jeannie, tell us, what are your expectations going forward? Is this a glide path forward for, uh, for Jackson? Yeah, I mean, we heard everything from child porn to critical race theory, something she's never really talked about or had anything right. to do with professionally. Children's books. I mean, you could go right down the list. And, you know, it, I, by my understanding, this is the first time since 1991 that you've had the Judiciary Committee deadlock on a vote like this. And, um, you know, I think it does, as you were just talking about with Greg, it speaks to the times, not to the nominee at all. And we should, of course, remember that this is the anniversary of Martin Luther King's death in 1968, and now you have this historic nomination, it certainly will get through. But to your point, even something like a delayed flight from California, or I think Emily said somebody, right. you know, stubbing their toe, this could slow things down, but this will get through by the narrowest margin. I will be surprised if you get any more than, you know, we already have, you know, Collins, I, I'd be surprised if you get one or two more. That's going to be it for Republicans. And in our current system and situation that's bipartisan which is stunning in and of itself rick davis i, I wanted to ask you just because you you're a man of the senate uh you've worked with senators before uh, what should we be reading into the fact that we haven't heard from mitt romney and lisa murkowski yet saying how they would vote i mean certainly we've heard enough testimony at this point from judge ja judge jackson i think for anyone to make their decision yeah, I think it's a, a sense that they're actually thinking it over, right? I mean, I, you know, if, if there's anybody who, even as you point out, this late stage uh, would be undecided, it might be those two. And, and there are a lot of different factors, uh, not only uh, sort of getting comfortable with the nomination and, 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 and their preparation to vote uh, on it, but also the politics and the ramifications of it. Uh, these things are intensely political for the one moment that they shine brightest in Washington. And I have no doubt uh, that uh, Lisa Murkowski, who's got a tough reelection fight in Alaska this year, uh, is got to have that entering her, her thinking. Guys, aside from that, I was very interested in Greg Valliere's point uh, just a few minutes ago on the challenges for President Biden. Now, I, I would push back a little bit and say a lot of some of the things that are weighing on him in the polls could improve a lot by November 2024. Inflation, for example, we don't know how long the Russia-Ukraine situation is going to last or what that'll look like. But one thing that plays against him, it seems, indefinitely, is his age. He would be 86 years old at the end of a second term. Uh, he can't turn back the clock. How much of a, a political issue is that really, Rick? You know, look, I think it's a serious political issue. I remember having these conversations with John McCain at the, you know, spry young age of 72 about running for re-election. And, and, and even in those days, that was considered, um, you know, kind of pushing it. Uh, so, so, yeah, I think it's a, a practical application of, of what people look for in their president. And, and geriatrics is not the, the term that usually is applied. So I think that the Democrats have an issue there. Uh, if he decides to run, he's got to take that on at first. Uh, but it wouldn't surprise me that if he decides not to run, it isn't because of the age gap. Well, Jeannie, that raises the question. If Biden decides not to run, is there anyone at this point who is really stand out to be the next uh, nominee for the Democrats? 
Well, you know, of course, you have to look at the sitting vice president, Kamala Harris. Um, you know, whether she would garner the support in a Democratic primary is another question, but certainly she would be in line. And, you know, you can look at all of the other people who ran in 2020. You know, they may face similar issues, but, you know, people like Elizabeth Warren, people like Bernie Sanders, I think, you know, Amy Klobuchar, I mean, you can just go down the list. I'm certain they would have interest in thinking about it again. But, you know, I, I think it's a little premature to count uh, Joe Biden out at this point. I agree with Rick. Age is certainly a consideration. But, you know, this is something that he's going to have to weigh as we get closer. He's been noncommittal on this point. And I thought it was very interesting, by the way, that Ron Klain this weekend started talking about Rick Scott and the issue of Social Security, because that is one thing that Democrats want to raise as they move into the midterms and beyond, which can help them sort of get out of some of these slumps. And definitely it's worth noting that Vice President Harris's approval rating is also not super great right now, along with Biden's. Even before 2024, something weighing on Democrats heading into the November midterm elections. Guys, we'll be back with the panel in a little bit. Coming up next, we're going to talk to Daniel Fried, former ambassador to Poland, now at the Atlantic Council. With Emily Wilkins, I'm Jack Fitzpatrick. This is Bloomberg. Broadcasting live from our nation's capital, Bloomberg 99.1, to New York, Bloomberg 1130, to Boston, Bloomberg 1061, to San Francisco, Bloomberg 960, to the country, Sirius XM Channel 119, and around the globe, the Bloomberg Business App and BloombergRadio.com. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew. This is Emily Wilkins and Jack Fitzpatrick. We are in this week for Joe. Support for Ukraine has remained high in the U.S., as well as pressure to continue finding ways to punish Russia for the invasion. And the urgency to do so has only grown after reports this weekend of scores of civilian deaths in a Kyiv suburb. We're going to talk about that more with Ambassador Daniel Fried in a minute on what more can be done. Well, President Biden today called for a war crimes investigation into Russia and President Putin following evidence of what Ukraine is calling torture in the Kiev suburb of Busha. Biden, while speaking to reporters at Fort McNair in Washington, said he plans to add more sanctions against Russia. You may remember I got criticized for calling Putin a war criminal. Well, the truth of the matter... You saw what happened in Bucha. This warrants him. He is a war criminal. Joining us now is Daniel Fried, the former ambassador to Poland, a former assistant secretary of state for Europe. Ambassador, thank you so much for joining us. Can we just talk for a minute about what we know at this point for sure about these deaths in Bucha? What we know is that the apparent massacre of civilians at Bucha fits the pattern of Russia's conduct of this war from the beginning. We know that they're shelling and rocketing cities. Uh, We know that they're indiscriminately killing people as a kind of a terror operation. And we know that this fits the pattern of Soviet activities, of what their military did in Eastern Europe uh, at the end of World War II. We've seen this before, so it shouldn't be a surprise. So since we've seen this before... How do we know about what the U.S. should do to respond? Is this a a time that calls for more sanctions? 
It's a time that calls for more sanctions and more military assistance to Ukraine so they can defend themselves and do it right now. Right now, the battle is not decided. The Ukrainians could actually defeat the Russian offensive. I'm not saying they will. I'm saying they might. And we need to lean forward and help them defend themselves. You need to put more pressure on the Russians, on the Russian economy, and there are ways to do it. I think the Biden administration is thinking about it. The Germans are thinking about it. And we need to um, think fast and then act. Ambassador, we've heard so much about the sanctions that have been placed on Russia. Uh, How much more can we do, can the the rest of the world do, uh, and what specifically would be the the, uh, kind of sanction that really gets to Vladimir Putin and and might change his mind, if that's even possible? It's not just, just a question of changing Putin's mind. It's a question of weakening the Russian economy so Putin has fewer resources. My last job in government was sanctions coordinator, and I was in that job when, when Putin first attacked Ukraine in 2014. Uh, in sanctions, follow the money. Putin and his regime makes money by exporting oil and gas, so go after that. Now, you could do an embargo. The United States has done it, but easy for us, right? We're, we're much more energy independent. Poland and Lithuania have already said that they're going to phase out this year all uh, imports of energy from Russia. The Germans, new government, are thinking about what more they can do. We need to, to find ways to diminish the income that Russia makes by selling oil and gas. There are different ways to do it. There is an embargo. There are tariffs. There are the threats of secondary sanctions, that is, make the Chinese and the Indians uh, lower their purchases of Russian oil. Uh, Otherwise, you might sanction them. This is what we've done, what we did uh, in the Iran sanctions program. So there are options. And we need to, to realize this is a war. And it's a war with atrocities. Mass killings and more will be discovered. I can almost promise you that. And it's a war that the Ukrainians have a shot at winning. So let's lean forward. Ambassador, one thing that I know that President Zelensky mentioned when he addressed Congress the other week was talking about a no-fly zone. And I'm wondering now that we are starting to see some of these images becoming aware that we're beginning to use the terminology war crimes, is that something that the U.S. needs to begin thinking about, maybe not implementing right now, but starting to discuss when and if they would implement a no-fly zone? I think it's a good idea for the U.S. to start thinking about what kind of security relations it wants to have with Ukraine going forward. And if there were a ceasefire, if we help the Ukrainians block the Russian advance and Putin calls for a ceasefire basically to, to consolidate what he's gained, then we need to start reevaluating uh, that hard line the U.S. has drawn. The hard line is east of that line. It's not NATO. It's Ukraine. So we don't, we don't defend them ourselves. West of the line is NATO territory, and we defend that. Well, fair enough. I understand why the administration took that position. But if there's a ceasefire, we need to to reconsider some of that. 
and make sure that Putin doesn't get a pause two, three years while he regroups and plans his next, his third assault on Ukraine. So, yeah, we do need to think about this kind of thing. And I think that kind of a hard line that the administration drew, understandable, I get it, but we don't want to be signaling too much what we won't do and thereby give Putin the green light to do what he wants to do. Ambassador, in the shorter term, in the nearer term, I'm curious what you make of uh, what National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan described as Russia repositioning forces to focus on an offensive in eastern Ukraine. Are they scaling back their ambitions, or what do you make of that? I think Jake Sullivan is absolutely right. It looks like the Russian attack, their attempt to, to overrun Kiev has completely failed. They've withdrawn, but that doesn't mean the war is over. They're going to reposition forces and try in the east, where they've made some gains and where they've been occupying Ukrainian territory since 2014. I think Putin is looking for some kind of a victory that he can claim vindicates his his choice to go to war. I think if Mariupol falls and a repositioned Russian force takes a little bit more Ukrainian land, Mm-hmm. They may decide to announce a unilateral ceasefire. Mm-hmm. Well, and Ambassador, do a victory parade. Um, Ambassador, we are going to have to leave it there for today. Thank you so much for joining us, Ambassador, former Ambassador to Poland, Daniel Freed. Uh, coming up, we'll be breaking down a little bit more about these sanctions with our panel. This is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. Lawmakers announced a bipartisan deal just this afternoon on a $10 billion COVID aid bill, including money for therapeutics and research on emerging variants. We've got to discuss this with our panel. I'm Jack Fitzpatrick from Bloomberg Government here with my colleague Emily Wilkins. We are co-hosting while Joe Matthew is out. He'll be back next week. We're going to bring in our panel, Bloomberg Politics contributors Jeannie Sheehan-Zano and Rick Davis to discuss the path forward for any further COVID aid. Guys, I would note that this was uh, negotiated and just announced earlier this afternoon by Senators Chuck Schumer and Mitt Romney. Uh, Lawmakers are going to try to send a bill to the president's desk this week before they leave for a two-week recess. There is nothing for uh, global vaccine aid in this. That was something that key Democrats had pushed for. They'll continue that conversation in other bills, uh, but this $10 billion does not have anything for international uh, vaccine aid. Jeannie, I want to get your take on this. I'm surprised a little bit after the trillions spent uh, over the last couple of years in response, uh, the federal response to the COVID pandemic, that lawmakers lately have kind of been bickering over 
$10 billion that's fully offset, pulling back previously appropriated money that hasn't been spent. Uh, there's nothing in there for global vaccine aid, which was important to a number of Democrats. What do you make of where things stand right now in the conversations around providing more resources, and, and where do we go forward? You know, I think we got to give a lot of credit to Mitt Romney, a lot of credit to Chuck Schumer, but Mitt Romney in particular for moving this forward. You're right. It certainly doesn't have what many, particularly Democrats, but Repu some Republicans as well, want wanted by way of aid for other countries, particularly low-income countries. Many people in Congress feel and people around the world feel as the United States of America as the superpower in the world. We have an obligation to help support vaccinations and, and health issues in those countries. We're not going to be able to do that with this bill, although I did, I do understand that Mitt Romney has said there may be a way to do that separately and going right. forward. So it, it's going to be interesting to see if this moves through, how fast fast it does and can they get it out before the the Easter break I think they will but it is you know I think to Mitt Romney's credit that he's put himself on the line for this and it's not as big as Democrats wanted but it is a substantial amount of money Right. Well, as you mentioned, Jeannie, it raises questions about when the next bill would come because there's still a push for global vaccine aid. It's a relatively small number. Uh, Rick Davis, why is Mitt Romney negotiating this? He's not an, uh, on appropriations. He's not a member of leadership. How did Mitt Romney end up in this sort of pseudo leadership role of kind of being put in charge of these COVID negotiations? Yeah, I think he he volunteered. I mean, it was one of those classic, you know, what everybody wants to work on this COVID funding bill, step forward, and he was the only one who did. Uh, and uh, he's got a good relationship with Chuck Schumer. They've talked about the need for this. Um, look, I mean, Mitt Romney's a pretty compassionate guy. He's always been there when uh, the country has needed uh, to fund COVID relief, especially um, uh, throughout the course of the last uh, few years. So it wasn't a surprise that he wanted to take a leadership role on this. But I think he also added the element to this that we haven't talked about much, and that is that, that it needed to be paid for, right? The days of just borrowing money from the, from the Treasury to pay for trillions of dollars of, of COVID relief are over. And I think this is the first indication that maybe those trillions uh, were – uh, probably more than we needed because they were able to just reprogram some of the funds that already right. had been approved to pay for this. So uh, it kind of made everybody happy. And I think it does open up the opportunity in future to do the same thing for other things, other priorities around COVID, like uh, the foreign vaccine program. And, you know, this is coming at a time where we're seeing cases decline, we're seeing masks removed, we're seeing mandates dropped. Um, and, Jeannie, I'm kind of wondering, the fact that they are, you know, in line to now pass this funding, do you think it's going to mean that we're going to be seeing more bills like this as we continue to see new variants, as we continue to try to fully get past this pandemic? Would you expect that, that we'd see more funding for COVID? We certainly should. I mean, if we take a step back, one of the things we've all learned in the last three years hopefully would be that this is something of a no-brainer we don't want to do this to our health our bodies our country the world certainly the economy ever again and we should be better prepared and this is one of the obligations our government has so when you step back this should really be a no-brainer that we do this and we do in fact more and the fact it's taken this long to get this bill much smaller than people wanted I think is pretty telling about where we are I mean I applaud Mitt Romney and Chuck Schumer's efforts but this really should be a no-brainer given we've all just lived through the last three years. Yeah, considering the broader discussion about how we prepare for 
uh, new variants, how we prepare for pandemics in general. I, I was a little surprised that the conversation about this $10 billion, when the White House had requested $22.5 billion, uh, took this long to negotiate and bumped right up against uh, a recess for the House and Senate. One other major piece of news today, guys, Republican states sued, filed the lawsuit today over the Biden administration's decision to end the pandemic policy that allowed officials to immediately expel many migrants and asylum seekers at the border. Uh, that was uh, promoted initially by the CDC. This was a pandemic policy, not on its own uh, an immigration policy. The lawsuit was just filed today by Arizona, Louisiana, and Missouri. Uh, Senator John Cornyn on Fox News Sunday did say that uh, there's a, a political angle to some of these issues and that, in fact, immigration is among the key issues Republicans want to focus on headed toward the midterms. Let's play his clip. Inflation is uh, undermining the standard of living of Americans across the country. Violent crime has spiked. The border is on fire and an invasion of, uh, of Ukraine by Vladimir Putin. We've got a lot to pay attention to, and to me, that, those would be the issues that would drive our agenda when we get back in the majority. Rick, I can't predict the outcome of this lawsuit just filed today over what they, they refer to as Title 42, that authority uh, under pandemic rules that officials had to expel people at the border. Uh, but clearly, Republicans are aiming to make immigration a major issue on the campaign trail between now and November. What is the political uh, fallout of the end of Title 42, do you think? Yeah, look, I think it's a gift to Republicans running. Uh, I don't think it makes uh, a lot of sense for this administration. As you say, Jack, while they're asking for additional billions from Congress to fight COVID, to then start releasing some of these functions that they put into place on the border. Uh, we still have to wear masks on trains and planes. And, 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 and so all of a sudden we get this sort of counter messaging and it's been great for Republicans. I mean, Republicans always knew the border was going to be a big issue. It's always, you know, in the top five amongst voters, regardless of what state you live in. And uh, this is going to propel it even higher. Uh, look, I mean, uh, this policy expelled 1.6 million people, and now it's being lifted without a plan in place to actually manage the transition. And so I think that it's going to be very difficult for Democrats to defend this. Many already are speaking against it, border state people like Kelly. Um, you know, Senator Kelly, who's got a tough race ahead of him, has spoken out that, you know, this is probably not the right time or, or thing right. to do. And uh, so I think we're going to see a lot of uh, rancor around this and a ton of TV commercials, you know, between now and the midterms. Yeah, Republicans are already planning to make immigration an issue even before this announcement. Uh, and this certainly, you know, adds some oomph to to the attacks that they were already planning to make on Democrats during this midterm season. Uh, but we should note that, you know, Title 42, it's going to remain in place until May 23rd. That's more than a month from now. And Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas said the government needs a, quote, comprehensive whole of government strategy to manage any potential increase in the number of migrants encountered at our border. Uh, that was a, a quote he made the other day. Uh, Jeannie, th does the administration have time to put something like that in place, a plan to address the increase of migrants that's expected at the southern border? They need to. Right now, you know, we are have about 2 million encounters at the border. That is way, way up, as Rick mentioned. And you've got Democrats in key states and not just border states like Mark Kelly. You've got Joe Manchin. You've got Maggie Hassan in New Hampshire. 
I was looking at listening to some of the media, local media coming out of non-border states this weekend. They are talking about this issue. You know, Democrats are right. This was put in place for health reasons. It makes sense from that perspective to lift it, but you can't do that without a plan in place to address the millions that are coming through. And that's where it raises questions that Republicans want to ask about whether, in fact, Joe Biden and the Democrats are competent to address these problems. And that's what they have to address with a plan. Well, one other name I'm, I'm following in Congress, aside from uh, people like Senator Kelly and anybody facing a tough reelection, would be Congresswoman Lucille Roybal Allard, uh, who I noticed put a, a statement out uh, on Friday about this. She is the chair of the subcommittee that funds the Department of Homeland Security, and she said late last week that Congress should prepare uh, for the possibility that they'll need to provide more resources at the border if there's a really large increase of people uh, arriving due to this policy. Rick, is, is that basically the expectation that if you loosen this up, we're going to see a, a very significant increase of people trying to cross the border knowing that it's much more difficult to immediately expel people? Yeah, I don't think it's so much that there's going to be an increase in the number of people surging uh, north from the border. Uh, that's already happening. I mean, there's a crisis on the border today. The question is, what are the tools that you're giving Homeland Security in order to try and expel those people who are illegally entering the United States? And this is now a tool in the toolkit that they're not going to be able to use, as you point out, you know, by the time end of May comes. So what are you going to do in the process? Are you going to let all those people just come in and, you know, hope for the best of rounding them up and, and, and either uh, holding them or releasing them into the population with hope that they'll make a court case sometime later on? Right. Right. A tough issue uh, politically and potentially legislatively for Democrats. Thanks again uh, to Bloomberg Politics contributors Jeannie Sheenzano and Rick Davis, our panelists, as well as Greg Valliere at AGF Investments and Daniel Freed at the Atlantic Council. With Emily Wilkins, I'm Jack Fitzpatrick. This is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.